Good morning, Bloods. It's good to worship together. Um, one more thing that we, we failed without Jess on is there is no countdown for this sermon, so buckle up. <laughs> All right. Um, for here or to go? I love it when I hear those words. That's the start of a line, uh, like an assembly line, almost like a factory of a product that is going to go gloriously into my stomach. Uh, but to go or hear, um, the difference really is just whether you get a lid or not, you know? Um, if you say to go, you get a lid. And uh, for a long time, I thought people who said to go were weak. Like, I'm going to eat that whole thing. No, I don't need a lid. Um, but that all changed. Um, because, uh, you know, the, the, the thing is, like, when you, when you go to this restaurant, I love their food. Um, but one of the downsides is sometimes they make burrito bowls like a gobstopper. Do you remember gobstoppers? Like, as, as it's in your mouth, it goes through layers, and it's a different flavor and color with every layer. And it's like, it's a different experience. The same piece of candy, but a different experience from here to here. And sometimes they make their bowls like that. And like, I want that stuff all mixed up. Like, I want all those flavors at one moment. And instead, it's like, here's like a dollop of sour cream, and here's like a pile of shredded lettuce, and here's a pile of cheese. And you're like, but you got to mix it up. But if you've done it right, and if you haven't done it right, like, I'll teach you happily. But if you've done it right, this stuff is heaped up here. So like, Trying to mix it means you're going to lose half of it on the table. And so it's just this big problem for me and one of my favorite restaurants. You feel me? <laughs> and here's the thing. One day, one of those weak people changed my life. So I watched. I watched as he gave that weak response to go, and he got the lid. And you know what he did? He secured that bad boy all the way around. And, <laughs> and opened it up and had the best burrito bowl ever. I was like, oh, oh, man. Sometimes we need someone or something outside of ourselves to shake us up. You know that? Sometimes we need someone or something outside of us to shake things up. And that's where we come to Philemon 6. So if you will, turn in your copy of Scripture. It's also going to be on the screen. Philemon, there is only one chapter, and we are in verse 6 as we continue our series through this short letter known as Philemon. So Philemon, chapter 1, verse 6. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. Paul continues praying. We started this last week. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. And I want to acknowledge right off the bat that practically every scholar who has ever tried to dissect this has admitted verse 6 is the most difficult verse to understand in the entire letter here. This presents many challenges, um, not just in how to interpret it, but even just translating it. It's like, man, it's, it's really complex. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. And so, this difficult passage, I want us to walk through it, and I have three questions that come to my mind, and I hope they come to yours, and, and try to wrestle through those questions as we work through what is Paul actually praying in this. When he says, I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. What? And so, first question, what is our participation in the faith? 
our participation in the faith. Because I've been taught my whole life, like good doctrine is, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, no one can boast. It's entirely what God has done that I have salvation. It's not what I have done. And so I hear this, this prayer that we would participate, participate in this faith. Like, but what, what does that mean? Participate, like my mind goes to, I'm, I'm doing something now. I'm active in this. What could this possibly mean? What is our participation in the faith? Um, the word participation is the Greek word koinonia, um, which you've probably heard repeatedly if you grew up in church circles. Um, but this, this idea of koinonia is often translated as fellowship. It's this idea of being together. And yet, at its root, and especially in this context, the term implies togetherness, this fellowship, but it also is about action. That it's not a passive coming together, it's an act of coming together, and it's most notably about sacrifice as you come together, that you are active in this. Together, active. The beauty of that together, as you participate, think same root word as partner, that we come together and we have a role to play. It's a term that points beautifully to the fact that God saved a people, not a person. That when you come to faith in Christ and you join his church, his bride, the saved, called, chosen people of God, his elect, his sealed with a promise for the day of redemption, his people, you have become a part of his people. It's not about us in isolation. It's us together, together with him. But together, we are active. That we do participate in this. Because uh, the, the, the tension here is absolutely, you are saved by grace through faith. You could never, ever, ever be good enough to earn a right standing before God. But God in his grace says, I love you, despite you. And I will make you lovely. And he gives us his very own righteousness. This is the imputation of what happens at the cross, that Jesus takes our place, taking on our sin, the penalty of our sin, the shame, the scorn, all of that he takes on himself and he gives us his righteousness. And it's by grace. And yet, as we respond to that through faith, that same faith that saves us, not from anything that we could do, but what God has done, that same faith that saves us is a faith that will change us. If you have a saving faith that results in no good deeds, James says, your faith is dead. Your faith is dead. A faith that saves us is a faith that is going to change us, and we are called into participation now in response to that. So I pray that your participation in the faith, the outgrowth of your faith, may become effective. May become effective. And so now, the next question. How does this participation become effective? meaning effective for what? That this faith is supposed to change me and now I participate in this as a response to it, but it becomes effective? Paul, Paul is praying that his participation becomes effective. Again, effective for what? So we remember the context of this letter. Why is Paul writing this letter to Philemon? Paul is a missionary, a missionary to the Gentile world, and he has come across this man named Onesimus who was a runaway slave. He ran away from his master, encounters Paul, comes to faith. He's discipled by Paul himself, and he's serving Paul. Paul loves Onesimus dearly. But Paul says, Onesimus, you need to go back. Paul also knows Philemon. And Philemon is a man of means who owns this slave, this runaway slave. And so Philemon has been wronged by Onesimus, who has run away. And Paul is sending Onesimus back to his slave master, which should make us very uncomfortable. But I hope as we continue this, you see the beauty of what's happening. Paul is saying, slave, go back to your master. 
But he's also saying, and that's what this letter is, Philemon, master, don't receive him back as a slave. Receive him back as a brother. Paul's whole point in writing this letter is that Philemon would change the way that he views Onesimus. Whether you rightly purchase the slave or whatever the case may be, he's coming back different. You've got to relate differently to him. That faith that saved you, remember, it brought you into a family that you partner and you participate together with as the people of God. He's in that family. So remember that. And so he's saying, your participation in the faith may become effective. Effective for what? Effective for receiving Onesimus back differently. That he comes back now as a brother. The gospel doesn't leave us the same. It has an effect. Do you see the effect of the gospel in your life? Does it change the way that you relate to others? Especially in the household of God. and the family of God. A faith that saves us, changes us, and the gospel is not going to leave us the same because it has an effect. There's an effective power of the gospel to do more than just save us. It's not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It changes us. And we walk in obedience. And so now, the next question. It says, I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. So your participation... He wants it to be effective. Effective for what? For reconciliation, for living truly in light of the gospel. How does it become effective? Through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. So how does participation become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ? What is it about this knowledge of the good that is in us for the glory of Christ that is going to make our faith effective? Our partnership is going to have results. It's going to bear fruit if we have this knowledge related to the good in us that God has put in us. Like, this is wild. What does this mean? We have to ask, what is the good in us? What is the good in you? I mean, if Jesus, God the Son, takes on flesh and walks this earth, the creator among his own creation who ultimately defies him, betrays him, and murders him, and knowing that that was the plan, as he walks this earth, God, the Son, is approached one day by a guy who says, hey, good teacher, I've got a question for you. And Jesus stops me and like, cool, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. And the beautiful thing in that is Jesus is not saying, I'm not God. In fact, he never says, I'm not good. He's actually saying, I am. God alone is good. And yet, there's good in us. So what is the good in us that is what leads to this effective participation in the faith? The good in us is the good of God. It's again, it's that, it's that imputation. It's a financial term that like if, if you have a debt and someone links up their account with yours and transfers and they impute their account to your account, they take what is rightly theirs in their possession and they transfer and they impute it, they put it in your account. And that is what God has done for us. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange, that he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. That this exchange took place, that the righteousness of Jesus, God the Son, was imputed, was credited to us. And therefore, we are justified. We are declared righteous. We have a right standing. The balance has been paid in full. And in fact, it's not just paid. We have the infinite, immeasurable riches of heaven, of the grace of God and his kindness to us in Christ Jesus for all ages. It's ours. The good of God in us is that God is in us. His spirit is in us, sealing us with this promise for the day of redemption. God is the good in us. The God dwells among his people. 
What an amazing thing that the temple veil was torn, the Holy of Holies, where God's manifest presence was to dwell. When Jesus died, the veil was torn in two, which is to signify that God is not restricted to this place. He's out. The temple is useless at this point. It was just a structure that some decades later would crumble, just like Jesus said it would. And yet the temple stands because Paul says, you, church, you are the temple. You are now the dwelling place of God. That when Solomon dedicates the temple as Solomon, the son of David, builds this ornate temple according to all the prescriptions and everything, he's this very exciting moment in the history of, of Israel. He prays, the spirit of God is there present. The manifest presence of God comes down like fire and smoke and fills the place. Like the place is no longer usable for a while because the presence of God is there, but comes down like fire. And then what happens at Pentecost? As Jesus said, wait, he's sending the comforter. He's sending the helper. He's sending the spirit. He would send his spirit. And when the spirit comes at Pentecost and the early church is gathered, what does the spirit come down like? Fire. Fire. Just like when God came down into the temple, because we are the temple now. The people of God are the dwelling place of God. And so what is the good in you? The knowledge of the good in us. Knowledge of what leads to effective participation in the faith? Knowledge of God in us. That we have been reconciled with God. That we have communion. We have an intimate, beautiful relationship with God. That we no longer are divided. We've been reconciled to him. And that reconcile that took place, the reconciliation between us and God, again, is not going to end there. It overflows with others. Then now I can be reconciled to you. Philemon, you can be reconciled to this brother who has hurt you. Onesimus, you can be reconciled to this brother who has hurt you. Because what is the greater reality here? That's we've been reconciled to God. The good in us is God in us. And then you go back to that Ephesians 2 passage that You're saved by grace through faith, not of works. No one can boast. And he goes on and says, you, masterpiece, you, workmanship, this beautiful creation of God so that you can walk in the good works that he prepared in advance for us to walk in. The good in us is God in us and then God empowering us to carry out these things that he himself ordained for us to do. All of the good, it's him. It's him. And so we need to know that because the battlefield of sanctification or our growing conformity, our growing holiness, our conformity to the image of Christ is in your brain. What we think, Romans 12.1, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is what changes us. We have to know, we have to have this knowledge and this knowledge doesn't end there. Again, it becomes an experience that we experience this beautiful communion with God and the reconciliation that took place between us and God then overflows in reconciliation with others. There's power there. And so we have to know this gospel, know that he is our good and he prepared good works for us to walk in, that he has these imperatives and theological terms. That Paul is giving commands. The scripture, beyond Paul, gives commands like, do this, do not do this, things like that. These are commands or imperatives. But then there are the indicatives. This This is your posture. This is your position. That all of the commands, all the things about changing your behavior, they only ever come as an outflow of what is just positionally true of us in Christ. That we do out of our being we must know, we must know the good that it is God. It is God in us. We see this gospel. We respond in faith, but then it results in a participation in this faith. We participate in the faith 
Alistair uh, Wilson, he's a commentator. He says, um, recognizing the difficulty of trying to see what exactly is Paul saying in this. He says, these translations, looking at how this passage gets translated multiple ways as it comes into English, says these translations appear to agree that Paul prays that the common faith he and Philemon share will be seen in growing appreciation of the remarkable nature of what God has accomplished for those who are united to Jesus by faith. As we see the profundity, the beauty, the glory of the gospel, what God has done for us, it shapes us. It changes us. It results and participation, participation in that faith that saves us and then changes us. We get to walk, it's about participation. Uh, But let's be honest, our culture pushes so much against this idea. Because the the kind of God, if you will, of lowercase g, but uppercase g in the minds of so many, the God of this age is consumerism. So we must just consume. We must have more and more and more. And the reality is that consumerism is not as satisfying as we think it is. And every one of us, to varying degrees, is fighting this battle. It is, it is the air we breathe. That all of the advertising is meant to say, it's never enough. But I've got the thing that you need. And as soon as you get the thing you need, there's another version coming. And that one's obsolete. It's, it's, it's not just the commodities that we buy. It's even the way that we view relationships. A cancel culture. If you're not doing it for me, then on to the next. It's over and over and over. Nothing is ever enough. And it bleeds into the church. This is the way pastor and writer John Tyson, he says, in a church as entertainment culture, instead of seeking to be equipped as disciples of Jesus, we are slowly formed into consumers and critics who give ratings and reviews on a local church's performance. But when we expect the church to entertain us, it limits the church's ability to challenge us. Entertainment rarely transforms. Rarely will entertainment transform us. So I want to call you, don't come to consume. Don't engage the church. Don't engage the faith just to consume. But like Paul says, to participate. Participate in this faith. Consumerism, it just conditions us to view everything as disposable and replaceable. And you know what that means? If everything is disposable, everything is replaceable, there's always something better, then you know what that's doing? It's taking everything and it's just cheapening it. That you'll find no real joy and things that should give you immense joy because you're always consumed by what is next. What will be better than this? And so we, we miss the beauty of where we are. We miss the beauty of the manifest relationship we have with God and with others. And we're always thinking, oh, what could be better? to think of the beauty of what God has done and be willing to sit in that, to enjoy that, to look around and see the Onesimus who has wronged us. And instead of thinking, how do I make this not just right, but even better for me, I think, well, that's a brother in Christ. I'm just so glad to have him back. To let this faith be about participation participate, see the value of the church, see the value of the people that God partnered together with and participate in this faith. Because you know what happens when we don't participate? It's tea time. almost forgot about this. Tea should be hot, okay? I know we're in the South. (laughs) Tea should be hot. Thank you. This is not hot. 
did you see when I poured it? The steaming. It was hot. You know why it's not hot now? I don't have my countdown, but I'm guessing 20 minutes has gone by. And you know what happened to this? It got cold. Why did it get cold? Because it was isolated from the source of heat. Because it was alone. Our love does the same thing. The tea grows cold because it's separated from the heat. And we too grow cold in our love and faith when we are isolated. Being a participant in the church is not an option in the way of Jesus. It's vital. It's necessary. We need each other. Every one of you is just as important as me or the person leading worship or the person clicking slides. Every one of us is vital. We are all part of the same body. Many members and yet one body. You can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. Can't say to the head, I have no need of you. Can't say to anything, I have no need of you because we're all one body and we care for our whole body. We need you and you need us because when we're isolated, we grow cold. This is actually how Jesus talked about it um, when people are asking him about like, what, what is the end of the age going to look like? And he gives all this stuff. It's called the Olivet Discourse. You can read it in Matthew 24, but he's saying a lot of things like, here's some signs to look for and all this stuff. But listen to what he says in verse 12. He says, because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So you know what is certain to be a reality when the end comes? That the love of many will have grown cold. And that's so heartbreaking and terrifying. That the love of many will grow cold. And why do things grow cold? When they're removed from the heat. Lawlessness will multiply. And who's going to hold you accountable so that you don't slip into lawlessness? The people of God who say, we value holiness. That we're to be holy because God is holy and he has called us holy. So let's act like it. See, that's actually for our good. It's good for this world for us to follow in the commands of our Lord. As Pastor Tim started this series, like this is real freedom to live within the right restraints. Oh, the beauty of this. And yet the love of many will grow cold in isolation. I'm convinced this is why the preacher who wrote the book of Hebrews he, he says this in chapter 10, 24 and 25, he says, and let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. What day? What day is approaching? The same day that Jesus is referencing, the end of the age known as the day of the Lord, as the prophets would call it. That the Lord will come visibly. He is returning and he's going to make all things new. There will be a judgment. And Jesus says, watch out, guys. Because as that day comes, the love of many will grow cold. And the author of Hebrews picks up on it and says, as that day comes, all the more, let's get together. Together, according to this partnership, this participation, this togetherness that is active. And we need each other. Don't be isolated. Like, we're not going to legalistically say, like, you better be at church every single week. Like, it's okay to have vacations and things. But man, I so pray and hope that you see the value of this, that we need this. We should regularly come together like the early church knowing this, 
They made their corporate worship day Sunday in honor of the Lord's day that he was resurrected on this day. And now, thousands of years later, we continue in that tradition to say, this is valuable, this is needed. And the author of Hebrews says, don't neglect it as some are in the habit of doing. And a habit gets formed. You don't just fall into a habit, you, you actually are formed into a habit. It's something that gets repeated and then suddenly, oh, it's, it's a mindless thing that I do. And so in the same way, if you want to build a good habit, you must be intentional about that. Make gathering with God's people a priority. And that's not just Sunday mornings. Because man, an hour and 15 minutes is not going to cut it. You need to be with the people of God throughout the week. Are you regularly connected with others that you can participate in the faith with? Be in a home group, be in a discipline, discipline practicing partnership. Like Have people that you can text and you know they've got you. I'm struggling with this. And you know that they understand. When, you, when you're rejoicing, are there people to rejoice with you? Because it's so much better to rejoice together. When you're grieving, when you're weeping, are there those who would weep with you? Even if their life is going great, can they enter into your suffering with you? We need to be together because the love of many will grow cold grows cold when we're separated from the heat. The doldrums, I heard this, this term a couple weeks ago. Um, doldrum just means like a time of, of just laxity, boredom even, like things are not moving. Um, but the doldrums geographically is this belt area across the equator where um, you, have, you have these trade winds coming from the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere and as they collide going westward um, because of the rotation of the earth and all this weird stuff with science, but as they come together and it's hot there, heat rises. And so all the turbulence is up high. And so down low, it's just like stagnant. It's just still stale air. And so sailors will come into this area knowing, you hope they know, that you may be stuck for a while. Like you could have days or even weeks where there's just no wind to propel you along. And he gets stuck in that. You may run out of provision. You may grow cold because there's no fuel. And in the same way, this can happen with our faith. That it may sneak up on us like that habit that some are in of neglecting the assembly, the gathering of God's people. A Pew study, a Pew research study says that 71% of people that leave the faith do so gradually. They do so gradually not radically in response to hurt, pain, intellectual objection, or anything else. It's just a gradual slip, like in the doldrums. I slow down, I'm not moving, and suddenly I'm in the habit of not being with the people of God. Um, a friend of mine actually wrote a book, The Great Dechurching, and, and it's supposed to be the largest sociological study that's been commissioned, and, and there's a lot in there that's way above my head. But one of the things that is very clear and is undeniable is we're living in the greatest religious land sh landscape shift that this nation has ever seen. So many people have walked away from the church. And you see that combined with this study. Like, 71%. It's not because they're like, I just can't reconcile this faith with science. It's not because some moral failure of a pastor who abused them or, or anything like that. It's, it's just they just slowly drifted away. 
So you got out of the habit. You have to see the necessity of getting together with the people of God to be together, to spur each other on to love and good works because our tendency is to stagnate like a drink that just settles and all that good stuff that you want to experience throughout it falls down and needs to be stirred up and we need each other to do that. That's why partnership, participation is necessary. It's the way of Jesus is not a spectator sport. We can't treat it like that. It's not about just coming and sitting and listening and thinking like, hmm, that was not so good today. Man, they were off on that. Pastor said this was pretty. No, it's not a spectator sport. You're here to participate. Every single one of us must participate in this gathering. And then in every moment throughout your life, you are the church, not a building, not a time. You are the church. And we must participate in this. Following Jesus together. What is it going to look like? It's going to look like praying desperately. You can do this here and now. You can do this throughout the week. Pray desperately for salvation. Oh, we have got to care that people are dying apart from a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We have got to care about people going to hell. We have to care that they don't know the only hope that this planet will ever know is Jesus. Do we care? Pray desperately that God in his sovereignty and in your participation would bring people to know him and that he'll be glorified in that. That more people would know Jesus. Pray desperately for healing. Like last week, as we pray for Jess, let's do that all the time. One one guy this week told me, he he said, you know, I've I've had to break the habit of saying I'm going to pray for you. This happened at home group this week. He said, "I, I, I now make it a point to say, let's pray. There's so much wisdom in that. To just be a praying people, to participate in what God can do in his power. Let's pray for growing holiness. Let's pray for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Let's live for more than just the weekend and a paycheck and a bottom line in our bank account. Let's live for the king. When you come together, let's sing loudly. It's a new building. Let's rock this place with our voices. Not just turning up the volume of a band, but us I'm terrible at singing. And so I, I, I'm the first person to say, like, when, when, it, when the volume's quiet, Kevin's quiet. Because if I hear myself, I know I'm off. And I'm like, oh, poor guy next to me. Oh. Sing loud. Sing loud for our king. Because the people around you actually need to hear you. Because this is an encouragement to them that this is what we believe, guys. This is our anthem. And so if I can't sing it, I'm just going to shout it like an anthem. And if I'm off key, I'm off key. But I want you to hear that this is what I believe. This is what I know is true. We need to hear each other. Be predictably present. Present, not just physically, but mentally. Like when you encounter each other, when I encounter you, if we can actually give each other time and attention to really see each other, to really hear each other, to be predictably present for each other. And go be attentive to the Spirit. Look for others. And serve. And the question that we monthly ask with our deacons is, hey, you have a heart to serve. What good needs to happen in this community so that they know the kingdom of God has truly come? Ask that with your home group. Ask that with your family. Ask that to yourself. What can I do? How can I serve so that this community would know the kingdom of God has really come? I see it in these people. What can we do? How can we serve in this way? Go proclaim the gospel. Because it is absolute nonsense that you can just preach the gospel with your actions. You must proclaim the gospel. Don't be afraid. And if you don't have it all polished, that's okay. 
Just follow in obedience. Share what the Lord has done for you, what you know to be true. Prepare for that. Proclaim the gospel. And listen, uh, this is a big one for me as a teacher. And I so hope that, that the sermons that I preach, I hope that they're helpful as you understand and apply the word of God to your life. I hope that it changes you. I pray that it does, and I trust in the promise of God that his word does not return void. But more than just you changing, I hope that as you encounter teaching, you listen not just for your own sake, but for the sake of others that you're discipling. That everything comes in and should shape our hearts, but then, again, be this overflow that now I'm calling others into the way of Jesus. And so as I learn this, how can I teach this to my wife? How can I, how can I communicate this to my kids? How do I talk to my kids about a letter that never says, slavery is evil, knock it off, Philemon? But how do I teach them? It is evil. And I want you to see the beauty of how Paul is undoing this injustice strategically in this glorious way that only the gospel can do. How do you do that? You listen for application and personal growth, but also for replication, for the discipleship of others. And then very practically, you serve on a team. And one of the best ways you can get into community here is just serve on a team. Jump into serving. We need more help. Be active in a home group. Have a discipline practicing partner. But know that the end game of all of this, what's the goal? How do I say it? For the glory of Christ. That we do all things to the glory of Christ. That his name is to be exalted above all. And as we exalt his name, he said, I will draw men to myself. So let's lift Jesus high. The one who has come to save us, the one who wants to be with us, and then says, this faith that you have in me, it's actually gonna change you. Participate with me in it. Will you believe this good news? Let's pray. God, thank you for your extravagant love. Uh, this faith that is, is so complex. God, that, that you would save us by grace through faith and then this faith in us that's actually a gift from you would continue to change us and we would be invited into participating with you. So God, would you use this church? Help us, God to not grow cold in our love, but to be fired up, oh, just passionate about you, your glory, your kingdom. Make it so, Spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.